from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Anxiety Bites podcast, and I am your host, Jen Kirkman. I hope you enjoyed last week's phobia of flying episode. I know some people wrote me and said it was giving them anxiety to hear me describe my anxiety in detail. And that does happen, even if we're not anxious when we start listening to something. Hearing people talk about anxiety can bring things up and be, for lack of a better word, triggering. And so I, that's why I really appreciate the conversation I had with this week's guest, Claire Bidwell-Smith, and I'll get into her in, in a moment. But Something I really love about how we started this episode is we took into account, you know, if someone is listening, um, maybe they need to kind of ground themselves before they get into the episode. And that had nothing to do with last week's Fear of Flying episode. I've recorded a bunch of these interviews, you know, months and months in advance as I tried to get ahead of this podcast. And it just sort of shook out that way that these two episodes are back to back. But in um, Claire's new book, Anxiety, The Missing Stage of Grief, her book starts with uh, 
asking the reader to, you know, make sure they're in kind of a safe space mentally, physically. Maybe they need to take a minute and do some breathing before they dive into a book about grief and loss and death and anxiety. And so we sort of talked about that at the beginning of the episode. You know, what can people do when they're about to listen to something that may just stir up some, even if it's not emotions, but just physical sensations that are uncomfortable that you don't want to have while you're driving to work or sitting at your desk listening with headphones on. So I guess if you need to hit pause and take a few breaths and get get centered and tell yourself you're safe, it's okay. But we are going to be talking about death and anxiety in this episode. And it's actually one of my favorite episodes because I love talking about death because I don't know if you're anything like me, but I'm going to die someday. <laughs> and I don't know when. And, um, you know, that's sort of how we all come into this world, right? We don't get a return ticket. We don't know when that is going to happen. And uh, in my opinion, I think that's probably what's created a lot of my anxiety. Now, if I was given the choice, well, would you rather not know at all? Would you rather be more like an animal who just has no sense of the fact that they're mortal? I, I guess not. I mean, I, I, I have a feeling that it probably works out better to, to know that this is a special experience and this is a limited time offer. I mean, who knows? I can be pretty uh, unmotivated as it is <laughs> knowing, you know, um, that we're all not here forever. So I imagine if I really had no concept of that, I don't know. I don't know how much I would get done in a day. I don't know how much I would really think about enjoying myself. Who knows? But one thing that I do know is that in my entire life where I've had a fear of death, I, I pushed those feelings away. I didn't want to think about it because I thought to think about it would make it worse. In my experience, it's been completely the opposite. Not thinking about the fact that people die or I might die has just festered in my soul, in my psyche, even in my body. And it came out as intense panic attacks. And and honestly, I'd rather be uncomfortable for a few minutes a day intellectually thinking about death, maybe feeling some sensations of anxiety than having, quote, out of the blue panic attacks six to 10 times a day for decades like I used to. And it wasn't until I read Claire's book that something just made sense to me that hadn't made sense for decades. And i that's why I love continuing to investigate anxiety because I keep learning things or I keep changing my own story and saying, oh, wait, that's why I was so anxious back then. Because I remember my panic attacks really heating up when I was about 12 years old. And until then, they'd been pretty relegated to airplanes, things like that, places where it makes sense. But I started having panic attacks just around, just in life, when I was about 12. And for, a lot, you know, a lot of the story is, oh, well, you know, it was the 80s, and there was a lot of talk about nuclear war on TV, and, you know, all of us kids in the 80s were just thought any minute now we were going to get nuked, because that's, that's kind of what we were told. And I guess, I guess that could have caused some panic. I mean, for sure, it wasn't my favorite thing, but... I wonder how much I really internalized that or really understood that that was an actual risk. I mean, I, I don't know. But it wasn't until I read Claire's book that I realized, oh, I think when my grandfather died is when my panic attacks really started visiting me. 
a lot more. And so the way that my mind worked through this in the years, you know, my whole life actually was, well, I wasn't that close to my grandfather. I don't even know if I ever had a one-on-one deep conversation with him. He died when I was 12. He had dozens of grandchildren. We saw him twice a year at holidays. I mean, really, what would I be panicking about the fact that he died? I mean, grandparents die. We almost say it in a sort of flip way, like, oh, you know, oh, does that, has anyone you know died? Oh, and just, just my grandparents. You know, like, it's like, oh, those people are supposed to die. And, and that's just sort of how I looked at, oh, you know, just, just my grandfather died when I was 12. No big deal. But it's like, it was a big deal. It was the first death I'd ever experienced. I, I remember I did see his body um, at the funeral home and, and I didn't love that. I didn't, I didn't mean to, I, I, I turned a corner, open casket and, and, you know, and, um, going to the graveyard and, and just seeing a hole in the ground and what, and, you know, putting a coffin in there and he's in there and he's not alive and we all threw a flower on it. It's all very beautiful, but I mean, that's weird. No, I'm not judging it. I'm not saying that we should come up with a new tradition. I'm just saying that's just interesting, different experience. That is death in front of you. And I don't think I loved it. And I think in my brain, the last few decades, I thought, well, I mean, if you're not that close with someone, how could it affect you? It's like, because it's death and you're 12. And this is the first time you're seeing this thing you sort of knew in the back of your head happens to grandparents, but it's going to happen to you. You know, and uh, he wasn't sick a long time. It was pretty sudden. And of course that affected me, but I really think it gave me anxiety and panic attacks. I just didn't understand how those two were connected. And what I like about her book, Anxiety, The Missing Stage of Grief, I think it came out at the perfect time because I remember during the lockdown of 2020 feeling something that was not anxiety and it was not depression, but it was grief. I was grieving the fact that the world was in the state that it was, that so many people were dying of COVID, that so many people were sick, out of work, scared, that I didn't, you know, I wasn't going to be able to see people. I lived alone and I have depression and anxiety. And I and I knew this isn't depression because depression is almost like a lack of feeling anything, right? But this was more, um, it just gets you in the gut where it just feels like this is so much sorrow. And I realized, oh, I'm in some grief around the, the pandemic. And I think grief isn't something we talk about that much because, I mean, what are you going to do with grief, right? You know, anxiety, you at least know what you should do about it, whether you do it or not. Oh, oh I think there's some breathing involved. Everyone says maybe some yoga, maybe some therapy, but grief, it just seems like, oh, I don't know. It's too much. What, you know, and I have to work. What am I going to do? I can't take a month off and go grieve somewhere, you know, and and uh, I, that might involve crying and uh, forget it. I can't. And I'd always heard about the five stages of grief and I'd always heard that they weren't linear. So that if somebody dies, it's not like right away you're bawling your eyes out or you might or you might not or you might feel numb. And and I talked to, to Claire in this episode about myself a few times. I, I did mention the death of my grandfather. I mentioned the death of someone I know um, in this episode. And I, I really didn't want to in a weird way. It just sort of came out. And, and the reason it did is as I'm hosting this podcast, I'm not really trying to get advice for myself necessarily. Sometimes I am. But I just figure, well, if I feel this way, I'm not unique because I'm a human on the earth. Maybe someone listening can get something out of the example I'm making of myself in this moment. And so I didn't love bringing up this person I knew that that passed away. But I just decided to do it anyway, because I felt like I didn't have a normal grief. 
um, I was in such shock. I didn't feel anything for a while. And people would call me. You know, I got dozens and dozens of phone calls within the first day of everybody finding out. And it was like, how are you doing? You and people would tell me what I was feeling instead of just asking, oh, you must be on the ground sobbing. You must be this. You must be that. And because I wasn't any of those things, I thought I must be evil. I'm a sociopath. Something's wrong with me. And... You know, and then when I would tell people I'm kind of in shock, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, once you're out of shock, you will be wailing and screaming and crying. And it's, and, and then just that never happened. And so we talk a lot about how to let others grieve, you know, and, and not grief shame, which is something that came up during the pandemic. Or what are you grieving about? You know, you have a job and you're fine or, you know, you're not allowed to grieve because, you know, you're not the worst case scenario in this scenario or, or there's no right way to grieve. But anxiety is a huge part of grief. Suddenly, you know, we talked about how people going through grief might develop panic attacks or hypochondria or social anxiety. And what I found mind-blowing was that what Claire wrote about in her book is that the five stages of grief were initially written about people who were dying, not for the grieving. And so there needs to be this sixth stage, which is anxiety, because I never knew the five stages of grief were initially just for the dying. So that kind of blew my mind and and, real, and made me realize that we need to look at grief in a whole new way. So I hope you get a lot out of this episode. Um, you know, I feel like it's a little bit of a heavy topic for this holiday season, but I almost feel like it's perfect because I'm sure we've all lost people in our lives and the holiday season brings that up. Or we have our own grief about, I don't even know, maybe you dread the new year coming up because you're supposed to have achieved all of these things last year and look ahead to the next. And I don't know if that kind of thing brings up grief for me, even though it's not just the, you know, grief doesn't just mean somebody died. And we have a really fun conversation at the end where we talk about how we wish we could talk about death at dinner parties, at grocery stores. So I think you will enjoy this episode as heavy as it sounds like it's going to be. I actually found it really light and really affirming and really lovely. So I'll tell you a little bit about my guest today, Claire Bidwell-Smith. She's an American therapist and an author who specializes in grief. She has written uh, a memoir called The Rules of Inheritance, and she has another book called After This, When Life is Over, Where Do We Go? And her latest book that is the focus of this interview, Anxiety, the Missing Stage of Grief. She also has a podcast called The New Day Podcast, and every week, she tries to find a way to make life a little better so that you do not have to suffer in silence. Maybe you're successful but miserable at work. Maybe you have the perfect family on Instagram, but you're at each other's throats in real life. Or maybe you can't even put your finger on what feels weird, but you know you deserve more. Whatever it is, you're not alone. Hosted by renowned grief expert and therapist, Claire Bidwell-Smith. New Day offers easy actions you can try to keep moving forward. And Claire is a grief expert, as I talked about. And she does lead uh, programs for grief in addition to working with people one-on-one, -on -one, led by her work in hospice and private practice. So let's talk to Claire Bidwell-Smith. My guest today is Claire Bidwell-Smith, author of Anxiety, The Missing Stage of Grief. And uh, as the description says, taking a step beyond Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's widely accepted five stages of grief, anxiety, the missing stage of grief, explains the intimate connection between death and grief and how they specifically cause anxiety, unpacking everything from our age-old fears about mortality 
to the bare vulnerability a loss can make us feel. Welcome, Claire. Thank you for being on Anxiety Bites with me. Thanks, Jen. Thanks for having me. In your book, you mention that people should do anxiety level check-ins as they're reading it. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to have you explain first what that is and if you could take our listeners through one in case listening to this very episode might spike some anxiety for them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's the funny thing about anxiety or the slippery thing about it is that we can have anxiety about our anxiety and talking about anxiety can make us anxious. However, the way to work on anxiety is to talk about it, is to look at it and to lean into it, but it kind of just gets scary in the beginning, right? And then the more familiar you become with talking about it, with looking at it, the easier it gets. But in the beginning, we just kind of want to slam the door on it when we when we think about it or or talk about it. But knowing how to just start getting familiar with it is the way to get a grip on it. I don't think it's possible to fully get rid of anxiety. Mm -hmm. And I would love to think it is. I would love for that to be true. But in all the research I've done personally, my own anxiety and with people I've talked to and clients I've worked with, you know, we don't get rid of it completely, but we can learn how to manage it. We can learn how how to be with it, you know, but that requires talking about it. So if somebody's listening right now and they're thinking, oh my gosh, I might get really anxious during this episode. I've lost someone recently. Would you, is there anything you advise them to do while they're listening or before they sit down to listen? Just take some breaths. Um, maybe maybe listen during a time when you know when you're finished, you can do something to support yourself, whether you're going to be with a family member or a friend or be able to call somebody um, or just kind of go into it prepping yourself. Like this may stir up some anxiety for me. That's okay. Um, one of the ways we start to work on anxiety is to kind of externalize it, you know, so to think of it as this separate thing. It's not we are not the anxiety and it is a thing that happens and that comes into our room, you mm-hmm. know? Um, so thinking about it that way, like, okay, anxiety is going to come in the room with me as I listen to this and that's okay. I'm okay. Um, so kind of recognizing it. Yeah, that's so smart. I, I think we do so many things unconsciously, you know, throw on a podcast, drive to work, you know, and, right? and now you're stuck <laughs> in traffic on the freeway and and that might cause some anxiety. And now you're listening to this podcast about anxiety and then you just get to work and begin your day. And there was no come down in a way, you know, there was no bookending about it. I I think that's smart to think about when we take in information. Yeah. I mean, I think about this a lot. People ask me a lot about, about anxiety and whether or not it's increasing in our culture. And the answer is yes. Um, But I think one of the reasons for that is because we wake up in the morning and first thing we do, pretty much all of us, is look at our phone, yeah. right? Before we're even out of bed, we haven't gotten out of bed, we haven't talked to the person laying next to us if there is one. You no, know, we're looking at our phone and in the 60 seconds that we're looking at our phone, we're downloading so much information, a lot of it anxiety provoking, right? Like what the president said last night, what happened overseas somewhere, what our best friend made for breakfast that we're never going to achieve in our you know, perfect goals. So like right. we're just creating anxiety before we've even gotten out of bed in the morning. So I think being more intentional about information that we take in is important. Yeah. Well, and getting right into your book, I it blew my mind when I read this because I, I think we're all familiar with the five stages of grief. And can you tell me what those are, the, the traditional ones? Mm-hmm. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Okay. And so now we're adding anxiety to it. And what you said in your book is those five stages of grief, they are for people who are dying It was not meant to be a model of grieving for the people who are alive and grieving the death of someone. And that 
blew my mind. I, I don't know if anybody has ever said that before, if you're the first to note it or if I just never heard it, but that really helps. It is something that most people don't realize. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, I love her. If you look into who she was at all, she was like such a fucking rebel, a pioneer. She was doing stuff and talking about things that nobody else was in the 1960s as a female physician. Um, And she was really interested in dying patients in this hospital in Chicago where she was working. And all the other doctors and staff were very dismissive of, of people who were dying and of their experience. They were just treating them physically. And she was very curious about like what was happening for them um, on an emotional level. And so she started to speak with them. And she came up with this um, these five stages that they were going through, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and then acceptance, which make a lot of sense if you're facing death, right? Yeah. They actually do often happen in that linear order. The five stages were so swept away by our culture that she then began to apply them to the grief process. There is a book, you know, uh, on grief and grieving. It has the five stages in it. So these five stages were then applied by her to to the grief process. But even she admitted that they aren't meant to be this perfect formula. Mm-hmm. And they often don't work in a linear fashion in the kind of same way that they did for the dying process. But our culture loves them. We love the five stages. We can't get away from them. And I think it's partly because it would be great if there were a formula, mm-hmm. right? You're in some of the biggest pain you've ever been in in your life. You're grieving the loss of someone you love and you are looking for any way to not feel this way. And you're like, great, five stages. I'm going to go through these five and then I'm going to feel better. Right. That's why I think we've gotten stuck with these five stages. I've heard too, anytime I've been grieving something, oh, it's not linear. So don't worry if one day you feel like you're in acceptance and then you're angry again. And mm-hmm. and, and that is helpful. But for mm-hmm. me, I, it, reading your book made me realize, I, I had this notion during the pandemic that, I mean, I know we're still in it, but I mean, the very, very early stages of lockdown that I was, um, you know, I'd heard about your work and I was thinking about, yeah, that makes so much sense that anxiety is such a part of grief because I think even if it's not the death of someone, the grief of life changing, you lose a job, you have a breakup, anything I think can cause anxiety. And I think the way we see people acting these days, you know, whether it's someone freaking out on an airplane because they have to wear a mask or we just see a lot Mm -hmm. of pain. I think people are having anxiety about grieving the notion that, oh, wow, you know, we've never been through anything like this before. There's suddenly this disease spreading around the world and and most of our lives were pretty comfortable and 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 not just to say the yeah. pandemic everything can cause us to grieve but i really feel like i saw a lot of anxiety and then it, that must be grief deep down in a way right yeah it's a big mix of both i mean loss is about transition and transition creates anxiety we have a lot of anxiety about change. Um, We are a very adaptable species, but we also resist change and we get afraid. Um, We like to get comfortable, you know, get routines and and feel like we know what's going to happen tomorrow or next year or 10 years from now. The pandemic blew all of that out of the water, right? Like none of us had any idea what was going to happen tomorrow, let alone next year. And in some ways we still don't. So we've been sitting with this unknown and this uncertainty, which was always there. Right. We never really had any control, but it seems like it. (laughs) 
We have the illusion of it most of the time. And the pandemic really took that illusion away, which I think you're right, stirred up so much anxiety. And on top of that, we were grieving so much. We were grieving the loss of our usual way of life. Some people were grieving at people they've lost to COVID. Right. Um, people are grieving their kids being home from school, losing jobs and small businesses and our health. Um, and so there was so much there to grieve, so much to be anxious about. And it does, it creates this perfect storm where People are totally freaking out on airplanes. <laughs> it makes so much sense. Anxiety Bites will be right back after a quick little message from one of our sponsors. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. 
Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. When we talk about grief, though, when I think of grieving, like if you said to someone, hey, you know, you're experiencing is um, grief. It seems like I don't have time for grief. Grief is a vacation. You know, you take time off, you wear black and you mope around for two months. Who can do that? You know, I feel like Mm -hmm. in our culture, you have to grieve while you do other things. Right. And so I feel like people just go, I don't I don't even have time to grieve. That's like, you know, you'd have Mm -hmm. to be a billionaire with your own private island and a million people doing work for you. How do you, I don't know what the word is, but how do people grieve who are busy? I guess if that makes sense, can you grieve and can keep moving through your life if you need to? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. No, most of us cannot afford to just take two months off and sit in our feelings Mm -hmm. and like go to some grief retreat in Costa Rica or something. You know, it's, it's not, it's not an option for most of us. I will say that, um, many of us feel like we can't take time to grieve, but that isn't really um, a choice. Grief has its way with us no matter Mm. what. And so when we don't create space for it, I feel like it's more about creating space than finding time. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. And I think when we don't make space for it, it shows up in these other ways like anxiety, anger, depression, irritability, substance abuse, toxic relationships. Like it spills out in all these other ways when we don't make space to just really sit with actual grief and sadness and honoring something that has changed or that we've lost, you know? Um, We cover it up with all kinds of other stuff and we say, oh, we're not grieving. We don't have time to grieve, but you have time to be really angry and like drink too much and, (laughs) you know, freak out on an airplane. (laughs) So like, there's that. Yeah. And then I think making space and time for grief looks like, um, you know, even just little bits of it, you know, listening to a podcast and just to have a minute to reflect on your grief or your anxiety. Um, Journaling is a great way, which I know everybody rolls their eyes at, but it's really helpful. Take five minutes in the morning and journal a little bit. Um, Let yourself cry. You know, I have a lot of clients who will schedule time for themselves to cry. And so they'll Mm -hmm. pick one day a week when maybe they've got a couple hours on a Saturday afternoon and they will listen to some sad music and look at some photos of their person or listen to some old voicemails and they'll cry. And then they button it back up and have to go back into their busy lives. And that's okay. You know, that's making some space and some time for it. I love that idea because you're you're buttoning back up after you've released an emotion. And I think people just button up before they've even done that, mm-hmm. you know. And, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I know people roll their eyes at all those things, journaling, cry, but that's how we release. Yeah. I think it's hard too because, you know, I lost uh, someone that I, during the pandemic, not due to the pandemic, and... um it was actually my ex-husband had passed away and we weren't in touch. We hadn't been in touch for a decade. And I know, um, I mean, I don't know, but wow. I assume he died with some resentment at me. And um, it was interesting because I didn't feel anything. I was in that shock that you talk about in your book. And mm-hmm. what I found very unhelpful was everyone suddenly was a grief expert. You know, and, none of, <laughs> and everyone has had someone in their life who's died, but no one had been in my exact situation. And yeah. I felt attacked by the people trying to help me, um, calling and mm. saying, you must be 
freaking out right now. You must be bawling. And when I'd say, no, actually, I'm in shock and it feels bad. I feel bad. I'm I'm a bad person. Mm -hmm. Oh, any minute now, you're going to just break down. And I never did. But what did happen was I mysteriously started having a rapid heart rate um, Mm -hmm. the month after. And I went to, you know, I knew deep down this has got to be something. I went to the doctor and of course I'm normal. And then I suddenly had um, tooth pain and I had the need for a root canal. My dentist said, you must have been, you know, gripping your teeth in your sleep. Mm -hmm. And so there it was, you know, there was the grief. It was rapid heartbeat. I need a root canal. And I cried a little bit once, but this notion that I never had this nervous breakdown where I'm like, oh Lord, and like crying and screaming, I still feel like I did it wrong, you know? And, mm-hmm. and there's guilt in that because again, you have these people coming in with their expertise and it was like, you know, my first response to most things is anxiety. So I don't know why <laughs> it didn't surprise me that that was my response to this. You know, it's funny. I think that's the most common thing that people say to me is they feel like they're not doing it right. Um, and and there's no right way to grieve. And and every loss is so different. And this is a complicated, tricky one, right? You hadn't been in touch in a decade. There were complicated feelings. He's an ex. So who knows how he felt about yeah. you? You know, how are you supposed to grieve that? There's not really a blueprint for it. It's not the obvious, like someone that you were in a relationship with currently and loved and had good feelings about. Um, and so... It's confusing. And I think it's hard to kind of even find your way into those feelings. But also, this is the thing about grief that's interesting is that a loss like that brings up so much. Like it brings up your history and your past and choices you've made and age. You know, he's a peer. He's someone your age, um, ostensibly. And so it's just suddenly, you know, you're looking at your life in this new lens and that causes a lot of anxiety, right? Yeah. Um, There's a lot there. But yeah, people love to be grief experts. They (laughs) like to... um, appropriate other people's grief too. I think people get excited sometimes. Some people get excited about other people's yeah. grief and they like to kind of jump in with it. Yeah. Um, and then some people don't want anything to do with it. I like the idea of being grief curious rather than being an expert, you know, just being like, what's what's your grief like? Uh, you know, yeah. I know what mine's like, but what's yours like? That's a great thing to think about because if, if someone, you know, listening to this hasn't experienced the death of a loved one or anyone, it's, you know, they're, they're going to have people in their life that have, or even if you have, whatever, whoever mm-hmm. you are, Grief curious is a great way to put it because, I don't know, you, you really see that person in front of you. Yeah, totally. We saw a lot of grief shaming during the pandemic, which I just found so Oh, what's grief ridiculous. shaming? Just really um, telling people that they, they shouldn't be grieving something that they were grieving. You know, mm. like... Um, you know, especially uh, privileged people who were maybe grieving changes in their lives and like they weren't allowed to be grieving because they were privileged or, yeah. you know, someone grieving the loss of a pet and that not being acceptable because it wasn't the loss of a person, you know, yeah. just really putting a lot of judgment and shame around people's grief process. And it was like, why? 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 Just just live your own life and have your own grief. And this, there's there's not a competition here or you're not allowed to feel grief because you have so much other stuff, you know, like so many other resources. That's not really fair. We all get to grieve. We all get to struggle. And I think that's where, you know, a lot of the anxiety can come in, right? Is is that like self-judgment, all these ruminating thoughts in the back of our head? Because, you know, like you mentioned, when someone dies, we start thinking about ourselves. And how can we not? Mm-hmm. Because we know we're going to die. And so mm-hmm. I think I, you know, I became very self-focused anytime someone I know dies. Even someone I don't know, I just read about it. Someone my age sure, and the yeah. media dies. And I'm like, oh my God, tell me everything because I'm, <laughs> I want to know, you know, yeah. is this something that could happen to me? And I think maybe we have shame or guilt about that. But 
isn't that a natural reaction to hearing about death at all is to think about ourselves? Completely. It's okay. And I think it's normal and I think it's healthy and interesting. And it's one of the ways we grow and transform and change. And we do grieve celebrities and public figures. You know, people always feel weird sometimes about that. Well, I didn't know them, but you know, you can still think about them and you can still feel like you know them on some sense. They can evoke a lot of things for you about your life. Um, There's a lot there. And I think we just need to let ourselves have more feelings. It's sort of like an excuse to take ourselves through the story of our life, you know, um, that we don't Mm -hmm. normally sit around doing. So one of the interesting things is, you know, we all know anxiety and there's been many episodes of this podcast that have come out where it's like anxiety, these tingly nervous feelings, maybe a panic attack, but how does anxiety manifest in the grief process? Like, you know, regret, guilt, sadness, replaying things, conversations we had or ruminating about ones we should have had is what are all of the kind of symptoms of grief anxiety? Yeah, there's a lot. Um, you know, Grief anxiety is interesting. You can you can have been anxious your whole life and and already been familiar with anxiety, and then you go through a loss, and either it, either it gives you this big uptick in anxiety, or you're having new symptoms of anxiety. Maybe you're having panic attacks and you've never had them before, or you're having social phobias or hypochondria, um, and then you can be someone also who's never had anxiety, who's been just totally, you know, pretty stable and steady all along, and suddenly you go through a loss and and everything is anxious. Um, and so, so that's, that's interesting to look at. Uh, I think the correlation between your anxiety and the loss is the first thing to really look at. Um, you know, were you anxious before? If not, you know, clearly it has to do with this. If you already were anxious before, has, has it changed since the loss? But the thing that I first do with clients when they come in, usually they come in because they've had a panic attack and they've gone to the ER and they're like, mm. The, and they've had all the tests done and and the doctor has said to them, you're normal, you're fine. Your racing heart is normal. You're, you're, you're perfectly normal. Go see a therapist. Right. Um, and, and usually they've said, well, my dad died last, you know, like last August or something. Could it be that? And they're like, yes, go see a therapist. So, um, so then they come to me. And so the first thing I really do is say like, well, okay, well, what's your grief been like? And this would be, you know, looking back at your example of losing your ex-husband, it's like, What's your grief been like? Have you let yourself grieve? Have you, are there complicated feelings in the grief? You know, we have all kinds of feelings about people when they die. They aren't always positive. Sometimes we're angry. Sometimes we're hurt. Sometimes there's unresolved conversations. Sometimes we fucked up and didn't do something that we should have done or said or showed up in some way. And how do we sit with that and sort through it after the person is gone? There are lots of ways, but initially it seems impossible. Um, and so we're, we have all these complicated feelings that we don't know what to do with. So we don't make space for them. And then they spill out in this anxiety and these racing hearts and the panic attacks. And hypochondria is one I see so much. You start to worry about your own health and your own body and oh, like what's yeah. going to happen now. That makes sense. Um, is it hard to convince them that they can get... They can work through the last thing they said or didn't say, even without the other person here. Like it, it's possible. It's kind of, it's really all about them. Yeah, it is. Um, I think it's really possible. It's hard. Yeah. It takes time. Um, there's steps that you need to take. Um, it's kind of like a making amends process. There's a lot of self-forgiveness required. There's a lot of forgiveness of maybe the other person required. Um, there's self-compassion required. You know, all these things that were like, oh God, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to do those. But those are the ways that um, that we have to kind of, it's the only way to move through those those things that are still sitting, those unresolved, those unresolved things. You know, a lot of people, I, I'll see a lot of people who maybe lost a parent, but maybe they had a kind of shitty relationship with that yeah. parent. And now they're gone and they're like, wait, it's definitely 
clear that I will never be able to have a good relationship with them. It's over. And wait, we didn't get to talk about this and that, or maybe I did something. It's so hard to kind of sort through that initially. But I think sitting down with a therapist um, or reading about these kinds of things, or even talking with like a spiritual or religious counselor can help, you know, how do we, how do we get clear about this stuff? How do we forgive them? How do we forgive ourselves? You know, I like that you said in your book, closure is made up. And I think that is such a um, kind of control freaky thing that everyone thinks. I just need closure, you know, especially if if someone's Mm -hmm. going through a breakup. (laughs) Let's meet for coffee and have closure. You're never having closure. There's never closure. (laughs) No, there's never closure. So what, what do you mean by that it's made up? And what do we do instead of search for closure? I think some of it is like sitting with uncertainty and unknown, sitting with painful feelings. We can't tidy everything up. Mm -hmm. You know, some stuff is going to be messy. Some stuff is going to be painful. Um, Some stuff won't get resolved. You know, you're never going to um, maybe get an apology from someone you really want an apology from. So it's really more about learning how to sit with that, Mm -hmm. learning how to feel okay about it for yourself. They're never going to maybe turn into the nice person you wish they were or understand you in some way. But how can you understand yourself and feel okay about whatever it is that you want the apology for, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that constantly seeking this idea of closure is is only going to harm us and get in our way. And I think, too, you know, there are like layers. When we talk about the word acceptance, like that's a tricky word, especially for grief. It's never going to be okay that this person died. Right. You're never going to be like, okay, it's fine. It's fine that my dad died. Yeah. You know? Like it's not. It's never going to be okay. Um, and so that kind of acceptance doesn't exist. We can accept that they're not going to be in our life anymore. We can accept that we're going to live with some pain around this. We can accept that things will be different. We can accept that we didn't get to have that final conversation or goodbye um, and learn how to sit with that and hold it, you know? Yeah, I think the the notion of there is no closure, it, it will always sit with us, is like, that can be a relief. That can actually mm-hmm. bring the closure feeling. Yeah, stop seeking that thing. Stop chasing it. It can bring that closure <laughs> feeling people want, which is, ah. Uh, Again, it's it's hard to quantify, like the, even the notion of, okay, if they were, if I, whatever, if I said this on their deathbed or that, you don't know how that would have made you feel. It, it may not have felt mm-hmm. the way you wanted it to feel. And then there'd be grief over the closure. It didn't feel like I thought it was going to feel, you know? Right. And it changes all the time too, because we change, you know? So, you know, um, five years ago, you probably had a certain amount of feelings about your ex-husband and five years from now, you'll have a set of different Mm -hmm. feelings, you know, because it changes. And and so our internal relationship with these people changes too. Our understanding of them too, as we grow older, wiser, or have certain life experiences, we understand the people around us in new ways that maybe we didn't at the time that we were, you know, seeking that closure. (laughs) We'll be right back. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was 
before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it. And I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Well, you know, your book made me realize something. Um, here's another personal story from my life. When I was a kid, I had panic attacks. I started having them around like age eight or nine, but they were very specific to airplanes. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we, my family only flew once a year and, and uh, otherwise that was it. But when my grandfather died, when I was 12, the panic attacks started and they started literally the day he died. And mm-hmm. I remember thinking, oh, that airplane feeling is here, which is so scary because it's not fun when it's in your home, like your safe space. And so reading your book made me realize I'm reframing my reasons I had panic disorder in the sense that I always thought, well, I grew up in the 80s and people were talking about nuclear war a lot. But my grandfather and I were not close. He had, you know, mm-hmm. six children and dozens of grandchildren. And he was lovely. I saw him once a year at Christmas. I don't even know if we spoke more than two sentences. 
but he was my grandfather, yeah. you know, and my dad went to visit him at the hospital as he was dying. And he lives a little further away uh, from my grandfather's hospital than his brothers did. So he missed it. He missed the death. Mm. And my dad came home and I looked out the window as he was coming up the steps and I saw him trip and fall. And that, that was something that, that was a lot mm. for me. I'd never seen grief like that where he couldn't walk. And he came yeah, inside wow. and he was crying and he just said, my daddy's dead. And mm. for me, this 12-year-old, right, to hear my dad was, you know, he's alive still, but he was probably in his 50s then. So my daddy's dead. I, I think that literally yeah. broke my brain. That's scary. <laughs> like, yeah, that's terrifying. It was so tender of a moment and, and, and there was hugging and love and the funeral was great and all that. But I started having massive panic attacks yeah. at his funeral. And they never stopped until I went to therapy 10 years later. But looking back yeah. on it, I go, oh my God, I think even though the death wasn't the kind of death where you really knew someone, blah, 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 it was the first time death was real to me. Yeah. And to see your dad so affected by it, you know, and to think, well, I have a daddy. Like, what is that how I'm going to feel if that happens to me and that that could happen to you? Oof. And that, yeah, like, and then I could be the dead person. I mean, it was like yeah. a neurosis that just yeah. kept growing. And like you said, I don't think I developed hypochondria, but just fear of death. Like, just if I do, mm -hmm. if I stand in one place, I can't die. You know, the less I do, the, the more I'm like <laughs> saving my own life. Yeah. And it just, that kind of... um I don't know how to put it, but reading your book really blew my mind where I went, oh my God, that's where it all started. That feeling of, because I remember thinking, where did I learn that feeling of mm -hmm. unsafety? What have you uncovered about the flying? Did you, have you pinpointed where that originated for you? Yeah. So I've done like, I feel like now I fly all over the world by myself. I, I want to yeah. be, if I, I don't want to be a pilot, but I feel like I would love to be someone who flies with anxious people and helps them. And since Aww. I can't really do that, I started this podcast as a way to talk about anxiety. But what I pinpointed eventually was that it's literally just the in general lack of control that we feel in life. And mm -hmm. we don't really get to see how much we're not in control unless we're in places like airplanes. Sure. Like a little, tiny little tube up in the sky where we're like, we definitely don't feel any sense of control. I, I inherently don't think the plane's going to crash. And I, I actually kind of like being up there, but it's more that feeling of if I need help, but I can't get it right away. Mm -hmm. You know, um, mm -hmm. unlike if I'm walking by a hospital and have a heart attack, great, perfect. Right. So I think that's yeah. what it was. And that kind of seems to be for me, the everything of it all, which is lack of control. Mm -hmm. And then your grandfather's death completely reinforces that, you yeah. know, like that people die, that we don't have any control over it, that your dad didn't even get to be there and that he was so affected by it, you know? Yeah. So I think, I think my question in all of that is like people running around with panic disorder and anxiety. And I think a lot of times we focus on the world is stressful and blah, blah, blah. But it could be these little moments that I think, mm -hmm. you know, when I think of death, I, I don't know how many times I've heard other people say it, I say it, I go, when people go, oh, has anyone in your life died? Oh, yeah, but my grandparents, I was young. Like, like their deaths mm -hmm. don't count because they were old, I was young, who cares? That's like nothing. And I wonder yeah. if like so many of us are carrying around our first deaths as a source of anxiety. Sure, you know, because even though you may not have had a really intense emotional connection to them as people or as family members, their death is still that first, um, that first idea and that first confirmation that we don't, 
get to choose how long we're here, you know, mm-hmm. and that we do indeed exit and, and we don't know when, and we don't know how, and, and it's, you know, I think that first knowledge of that is intense. It can spark anxiety to begin with. And as I'm sure you know, anxiety is kind of insidious. You know, once it gets a hold and you don't do anything about it, it just grows and grows until you start to figure out what to do with it. Yeah, it's like your new best friend that you didn't ask for. You're like, Mm -hmm. this person keeps showing up. (laughs) Well, you know, what I thought was so cool in your book is you talk in, in the later chapters about okay, well, let's figure it out. Like, what do we think about death? Like, do we believe in an mm-hmm. afterlife? Like, let's let's almost get our affairs in order mentally. Like, what do we think? You know, yeah. and that can really yeah. help people. And, and how do you take people through that? Like, when's the right time to start thinking about that stuff? I think there's always a right time. I mean, right now is a great time to think about it. We are such a death avoidant culture. Yeah. We don't talk about it. We don't want to face it. We don't put our affairs in order. Um, you know, we don't even train our medical professionals on how to deal with death and dying. So here we were going through a pandemic. And do you know they don't teach death and dying in med school? Like what? there's not a point at any point where doctors or nurses or anybody have to take a class on death and dying, right? So that alone is absurd. But then factor that into this last year and all these medical professionals on the front lines sitting there with like helping patients say goodbye to their families over iPhones and being completely ill-equipped to deal with that even for themselves, you know, because we don't talk about death and dying. We don't talk about it. So anything you can do to talk about it. You know, one of the books I've written was all about the afterlife and just kind of exploring it. And my favorite part about that book was for a period of years, I asked everyone I met with, like, what do you think happens when we die? Mm. And I had the most awesome conversations because it's not something you ever really talk about. I had these conversations at dinner parties and like in, you know, just like at on the bus or like wherever. And I would ask everybody and everybody had a different idea and everybody was kind of excited to talk about it. Yeah. And you can start there, just like letting yourself be curious, um, letting yourself wonder, letting yourself explore different ideas. Now, I don't know if you're going to find the answer. Yeah. I didn't find like some sure answer, but I found um, different frameworks to understand life, different ways to kind of hold all this grief and loss. And, and I think that that's important. And the other flip side is like actually thinking about your own death. You yeah. know, like you are going to die. We're all going to die. I'm going to die. You're going to die. That's sometimes terrifying. Sometimes like, okay. Yeah. I well, I'm okay with you saying it to me now, but 2 a.m. tonight, I'll wake up and remember, you're going to die. <laughs> but, you know, if you kind of dig into that fear, like, what's your biggest fear around it? Is it that you don't know what happens mm-hmm. next? Is it that you're afraid of physical suffering at the end? Is it that you don't have your shit in order? Yeah. Like, I have three kids, and when I think about dying, my biggest fear is around them. And I'm like, oh, my God. Do they know that I want them to have my mom's, you know, ring about this thing? Or do they know my thoughts on, you know, the Rolling Stones or like whatever it (laughs) It is, is I want them to like know, right? So I've actually worked on that. I've written like a letter that in the event of my death, if it were today, like there's a letter about all kinds of like, here's this thing I want you to know about. Here's where you go find this. I want you to travel to Mexico and go stand on this one cliff and think about when I was there at 22, you know. Putting this kind of stuff in place, um, it's scary, but it's also actually anxiety relieving, which is weird. It sounds kind of fun too. Yeah. I mean, I love talking about death. I, I, you and I would have fun at a dinner party. I'm always like, I hate small talk at a coffee shop. How's your day going? I'd rather someone say yeah. to me, here's your change. Hey, what do you think happens when we die? You know, totally. <laughs> I just think it's fun. You know, my specific fear is just suffering at the moment of and, and feeling yeah. that fear. Um, 
I, tr- I, I wish I believed in something. And when other people believe in the afterlife, I believe in it for them, you know? Um, but mm-hmm. technically all I can imagine is that it's what it's like before I was born, which is just kind of nothing. And, and that mm-hmm. actually weirdly comforts me. Some people that doesn't comfort, um, yeah. I can't comprehend forever and ever heaven. And it sounds like, well, what if I get bored and I want to leave? Like that makes me anxious. So <laughs> I just picture, <laughs> you know, nothing and, and that's it. But it is something that I think, you know, just knowing, right, that we are going to die someday. How mm-hmm. does everyone on planet Earth not just have a baseline of anxiety as their as their number yeah. one emotion? Right. We are in so much denial. It's amazing. See, this is like this is why it's the first stage. We are in total denial at all times that that's going to happen because it can be paralyzing. Yeah. Right. It makes you not want to move, um, like not want to physically move out of one spot because it's just so scary. <laughs> right. I mean, I get it. I know. It's like I'm glad um, that I'm aware so that I don't go skydiving because I'm not into that. But like there's there's denial in terms of like, OK, I don't have to think about it every second. I'm allowed to like go on a road trip. But then there's, yeah, if we were in acceptance, I think we think we're in acceptance, don't we? Because we don't think about it. Like we think we think that's acceptance. Yeah, but I really, I really adhere to the belief that leaning into this stuff helps alleviate a lot of this and makes us feel more prepared. Even the idea of suffering, if like that's what you're afraid of is physically suffering at the end, do some research on it. Mm. Like there's a lot of actually really interesting research. I worked in hospice for a long time and I'm also very curious about physical suffering. And a lot of the clients I work with have watched a loved one physically suffer and they have a lot of feelings about that after that person's gone, like so upset that, that, that they had to go through that. And so I've done all kinds of research on what does it mean to physically suffer. And, and if you dive into it a little bit, there's a lot of different ideas and theories out there that we don't suffer and, and feel it in the ways we think we do and the ways that we think we perceive it. Um, so even digging into that might make you feel like, oh, okay, it's not going to be that bad. Yeah. Well, um, even there was something you said in your book that the death rattle doesn't feel like it sounds. Mm-hmm. That was my favorite thing I've ever read in my life. I was like, oh my God, that's because that's, that sounds terrifying. It's terrifying, right? But it's, it's, it's more like snoring, you know? Um, oh. it's, it's just the relaxation of our, of our, of our throat muscles. I feel like there should be a commercial on TV in like every 10 minutes telling people that. I mean, I just feel like we need to know this because people sit around and think about that, you know, and, and get, yeah. can scare themselves. Yeah, but but that's because we slam the door on it. So again, like just we we got to just like we talked about the very beginning, you know, entering into this, knowing it's going to be a little anxiety provoking to talk about, but then it gets easier and better and we get more of a handle on it. We'll continue the interview on the flip side of a quick message from our sponsors. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC 
was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Well, my last question for you then is, I love how through your book, um, you talk about storytelling and how that is so important. And I agree. I mean, whether we're talking about death or not or anything, any reason why someone's anxious, I'm a big fan of storytelling. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast is to just, let's just talk about anxiety. Even if someone listening never goes to therapy, never does any meditation, there's got to be something said for talking and just mm-hmm. normalizing it. So how does storytelling play a role in dealing with anxiety or grief? And, and how do you, do you teach it in some of your workshops? Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I'm always talking with clients about, I mean, one of the things they do when they come to see me is they tell their own story. Yeah. So there's a lot of storytelling that happens. Um, and then I'm always asking them to write, which they hate, but they do it yeah. anyway. Um, and to write either, they're writing letters to the people they've lost, or they're writing about their loss, or they're writing the story of the person's life who they lost. Um, and I think it's about intention. I think this is a way of creating space, again, for grief. You know, we can't just slam the door on these things. Um, 
like we keep reiterating, it asks us to look at our whole lives, mm. right? What is the story about our lives? And then there's this interesting part about how sometimes we tell ourselves stories that aren't true, right? And this kind of goes back to the idea of what we were talking about with guilt or making amends. Sometimes we hold ourselves to these things that that weren't actually true. Like maybe your dad, there's no way that he could have been there for his father's mm-hmm. death, you know? Um, we, we make things up in our head to fit a certain belief that we have about ourselves or about that person. And sometimes when we take a step back and look at the story we're telling, um, what's happening there? Can you change that story? Mm. You know, um, maybe you should change the story. Yeah. Uh, maybe there's a different way to look at it. And and it can go both positive and negative ways, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. And so you're not even necessarily saying like people should get up at an open mic and tell a story, but it's really just either they're writing it down, they're telling their therapist, they're maybe sharing mm-hmm. in a support group, telling their friends. It is really helpful. I think when we go through certain losses that are really big, yeah. it becomes so much of our identity. And it can be painful to have small talk. You know, it can be painful to to just talk with someone about the weather or did you watch that show? And you're like, my mom died. You know, like you need <laughs> right. to talk about it. Right. It's it's like all you're living at that moment. And so finding ways to tell that story, you know, um, whether it's on Facebook or at an open mic or, um, you know, anything, talking with a friend or a therapist. I said that was the last question, but I just want to say lastly, like just the, the notion <laughs> of, you also said, you know, grieving keeps us in the present, right? And And as we know, from every single therapist, everyone that talks about anxiety, meditation, staying in the present moment keeps us out of anxiety. And so it's very mm-hmm. interesting that this grief thing that we want, we're having trouble with or we want to push away is actually something that can keep us in the present, which I guess keeps anxiety at bay. It is. But, you know, with grief... Um... It's tricky because we're often thinking a lot about the past. We're thinking about what just happened and the person who died in our relationship. And we're also thinking about the future. We're thinking about what life looks like now that they're gone. And we're thinking about how our life has changed now that they're gone. So bringing our awareness back to the present moment is super important. It alleviates anxiety. It kind of brings us into a calmer space. Yeah. So it's almost like a great time to practice that. I guess if you're grieving. Always. And you don't have to like stay in the present all the time. Like we're never going to not be thinking about the future and the past, but just like try to have more moments that are present. Yeah, that's that's great. More moments that are present than less. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. This was just, you know, fun. I like talking about death. It was. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was really fun. (laughs) See, wasn't that fun? Didn't I tell you that that was kind of a fun, fun talk? So what are the takeaways that we learned from my interview with Claire Bidwell-Smith? First, whenever you're going to be listening to something about anxiety or reading something about anxiety, maybe do it during a time when you know that after you're done, you can do something right away to support yourself or if you're going to be with a family member or friend or you'd be able to call somebody, take some deep breaths and get yourself centered. One of the ways to work with anxiety is to externalize it. So think of it as a separate thing. We are not the anxiety. It's a thing that happens and in a way comes into our room. One of the reasons anxiety might be increasing in our culture is that the first thing we do when we wake up in the morning is look at our phone. Before we even get out of bed or talk to another human, we look at our phone. So if you can find a way to not have that be the first thing you do in the morning, that might alleviate a little bit of anxiety from the jump. The five stages of grief prior to this are 
anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Wait, what? That's four. <laughs> what is wrong with me? Oh, God, I love how imperfect this is sometimes. Denial. <laughs> Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance are the classic five stages of grief, and now we can add anxiety to that. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was the pioneer of the original five stages of grief. She was working in the 1960s. She was a female physician, and she was really interested in her dying patients, and she's a total pioneer. Loss is about transition, and transition creates anxiety. We have a lot of anxiety about change. Even though we are an adaptable species, we do tend to resist change at first and get afraid. We prefer comfortability and routines. When we don't make space for grief, it shows up in other ways like anxiety, anger, depression, irritability, substance abuse, and toxic relationships. Journaling, although as Claire says, you may roll your eyes at that, it takes five minutes. You can do it in the morning. Let yourself cry. That's a great way to sit with your grief while then getting up and going on about your day. There is no blueprint for grief and most people feel like they aren't doing it right. When talking to someone about grief before you go and give advice, be curious. Don't try to be an expert. Ask them what their grief was like and tell them what your grief was like. Grief shaming is telling people that they shouldn't be grieving something because they are in a privileged position. It may feel weird, but it's totally normal to grieve celebrities and public figures um, when they die, even if it's people that you didn't know personally, because they evoke a lot of things for you about your own life. If you have had anxiety your whole life and you're already familiar with it, when you go through a loss, it can give you a bigger uptick in anxiety. Or if you've never had anxiety and you go through a loss, you can certainly develop panic attacks, social anxiety, or hypochondria. Grieving also requires a lot of self-forgiveness. There is never closure. A repeat, there is never closure. And that's not just about death. That could be about a breakup, anything. There is never closure. Some of grief is having to sit with the uncertainty and unknown, sitting with painful feelings. We really can't tidy everything up. It will be messy. It will be painful. Some things won't get resolved. You may never get an apology from someone you want one from. So it's really about learning how to feel okay about things for yourself. Storytelling can be a big part of healing your grief, whether you literally get up and go to an open mic and talk to a group, or you write letters to people that you've lost, or you write a story in your journal. Storytelling is how we honor people, how we get our feelings out, and it does tend to alleviate anxiety because it creates a space for the grief. When we are in grief, a lot of times we are projecting into the future, what will life be like without this person or this situation, or we're going into the past, oh, remember when things were like this. And just like with anything else, when we're not in the present, it's easy to be anxious. The present moment always brings us back to a more calm place. And in a weird way, staying in the present, staying in your grief for a minute can help alleviate that future tripping or past remembering anxiety. Thanks again for listening to Anxiety Bites. I, all I want for Christmas is one thing. I would love 500 five-star reviews on my iTunes. I mean, 
listen, more would be great, but let's go for 500. We've got about 415 right now. It really helps other people find the show. And all I want is everybody to find this show and to listen and feel like they're normal and okay, because they are. So if you go to Apple Podcasts, I said iTunes, didn't I? If you go to Apple Podcasts, you can leave a five-star review there. And I would love it. Again, that's all I want for Christmas. Thanks again. And there will be a new episode next week. And just remember, anxiety bites, but you're in control. Thanks again for listening. And oh, one thing, if you want to follow me on social media, I'm at Jen Kirkman, J-E-N-K-I-R-K-M-A-N on Twitter. And same thing at Jen Kirkman on Instagram. There is no separate account for this podcast. It's just easier if I keep it all under my two things. So go there. Tell me what you think of the show. And now I will end it. Anxiety bites, but you're in control. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.